You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect the body and the mind? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, James Hibbert, author of The Art of Cycling, joins the conversation. He's got a background in cycling. He's got a background in philosophy. And hopefully I can keep pace with him. James, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Larry. So let's, I want to mention that because I'm a cycling fan for going way back. I dabbled in it. You're also a UCI professional road cyclist and you raced on the track. And you also a member of the U.S. cycling team. So I am very impressed and slightly intimidated by your accomplishments. So this, this is a story I want to share with everybody. I've gone across country from New York to California in many different ways in terms of transportation. When I was 17 years old, I cashed in my bank account. I got on a Greyhound bus and rode 66 hours to California. Later, I went cross country with three guys in a very small Volkswagen. I've driven my own van across multiple times with my dog. Going way back in time, I took the journey on my Fuji Finest, rode my bike across the country. And the last time I was there, I flew in to California to do a race out there. So I have very strong affections for where you live. What I'd like to do is normally we do a podcast or TV interviews or radio interviews or public events. The guests always come to me. Let's turn the tables around. If I came out to California and spent some time with you and your family, what would that be like? I think it's changed a lot. I think that there's two versions of California that are sort of at stake and, and a great deal of tension between. I think that there's um, a sort of coastal California on the road characterized by, by beat figures and Big Sur and a sort of 1960s, 70s counterculture that I still in my childhood in the 1980s saw the last vestiges of. And I think there's a new sort of California that is uh, Silicon Valley driven, hyper capitalist, um, and very different. And I think that connecting, and there's some continuity between those two versions of California, the sort of counterculture California and the current California in terms of a, a sort of freedom ethos. Right. But I think increasingly that sort of ethos of freedom that you saw in the 60s and 70s that characterized the culture of California has very much shifted towards uh, unchecked capitalist freedom and freedom of speech on the internet. And, and I think that there's an interesting thread there because those two sort of Californias that I could describe can seem so culturally and politically antithetical to one another. So, I want, so take, yeah. I want to take that one step further. I would love to be sitting in your kitchen with your family, big part of the story, yeah. or being someplace with the guys you ride with. If I was just yeah. a fly in the wall, I'd much rather listen than speak. So we, if I yeah. was in your kitchen or I was out yeah. with your, your buddies you write about, Jackson and Zach, they're yeah. fascinating yeah. guys. What would that conversation be like? 
the conversation would be, I think, still with us would be a lot of of inside jokes about what it was and who was around and what's happened to people who were quirky juniors in 1999 and a lot still among us. And I think this is touched on in the book, but just trying to sort of now in our forties, now all three of us, Jackson, Zach, and myself all having families trying to sort of make sense of what it was to have been very good at something for a brief period in our lives. So Max, um, and make, yeah. make sense yeah. of being af- of, be, of having been a professional athlete in your forties right. is a very strange, increasingly strange thing to do because hopefully you develop the perspective to realize that, Hey, this was, this was interesting, but this was not the sort of the bounds of the world are much larger than this sport. And when you're 18, 19 years old involved in, in a sport, you think that being good at that sport is the world itself. Right. So I think still uh, are still trying to sort of talk through and make sense of that really is um, something you'd overhear as we rode and joked and uh, everything else that goes along with the social aspects of being on a bike. So Max Leonard said, I'm going to paraphrase, cycling is an extended form of thinking. The art of cycling is a dazzling trip in both accounts. So I'm going to throw something out that we can both kind of wrestle with. Can we yeah. stipulate that the bicycle really in your case is a machine? Yeah. Yeah, I've got no I've got no problem with calling it a machine. So, this is where I'm going to go with this. Does man control the machine, in this case the bike, or does the machine control the man? And take that a little bit further by extension. Does the mind yeah. control the body or is the body control the mind? Is there synergy there? Or it's kind of split. Well, I think going back, I'll tackle part one or part two of your question first in terms of of sort of this idea of Cartesian mind-body dualism. I, I think that that in some ways the entirety of the book is uh, can be seen as an adjoiner against sort of any mind-body dualism and some of the philosophical and personal problems that come from thinking that your mind is separate and distinct from your body. So I, I think that a very holistic approach in terms of the mind-body problem is certainly where I land. In terms of the man-machine, I think that and which one is doing the controlling, I think that that's a lot a lot murkier and a more complex question because I think that whether it's riding a bike or playing the violin or using any tool, there's a really interesting back and forth in terms of how that tool is utilized and how the tool changes the user in this sort of bi-directional way. But I think what's brilliant about the bike is you sort of, and I, I, resort to the same analogy in the book but when you you were to look at a bike it would be completely inconceivable to understand what this thing was if you were an alien unaware of human morphology right the placement of the handlebars the pedals the saddle this would just be a nonsensical thing unless you understood what a human being looked like so, so I think there's something very interesting about that when it comes to thinking about the bicycle as a machine let's talk about being part of something the one. I think about you on the bike as being something together. I yeah. think about the rider and the horse. 
being right. in one in sync. Did you think about that much that when it was really working for you, what I call the sweet spot of time, it wasn't yeah. you, it wasn't the bike, it was both of you melding together? A thousand percent. I mean, I think that 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 sort of relationship where you just feel like a single unit and that's that's funny because it's predicated on a lot of things going right it's predicated on those moments of sort of cliche but sports scientists uh, general media people will sort of call that a flow state something like that right but it's predicated on everything really going right on your saddle being adjusted properly you're feeling good uh you're 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 not feeling the brakes. It's not, the bike's not shifting poorly. All of these things have to essentially become transparent for that to happen. So if you've got anything that's sort of in the bike as machine, that's showing you it's machineness, I guess, let's say, okay, because it's, it's the saddles creaking or, uh, it's not shifting properly or something that's reminding you that it's not merely an extension of you. The spell is broken. So I, I, I think that, that sort of achieving that state is the ideal, but it's also in some ways a rare thing for everything to, to align and coalesce for that to happen. So if the spell is broken before the spell is broken, yeah, is it magic? Yeah, I think there's absolute moments of, of magic in terms of being fully present. Right. And in terms of, at least in my case, not being in the sort of rational, reflective thinking mode and of having put in the time, unpleasant time, where it doesn't feel like magic in order for it to feel like magic for these sort of fleeting, fleeting moments when you're training or hopefully when you're, when you're racing the thing as well. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is James Hibbert. The book is called The Art of Cycling, Philosophy, Meaning, and a Life on Two Wheels. We communicated before, and you have a nice following because I've seen everything on Twitter. I think a lot of people really respect you and like you about all of your accomplishments. But the one thing that when I picked the book up before yeah. I read it, I know what's coming when I put my request in. You know who yeah. I thought of? I thought of two books. Okay. Two, two books. Piercing. I'm curious now. Piercing. Yeah. Piercing's book, which I had in my collection going way before I did anything like this. Zen in the Art right. of Motorcycle Maintenance. And because yep. I have a tangential connection to Jack Kerouac, the great classic book on the road, him yep. and Neil Cassidy. And that's the yep. two books that I th thought of first when I decided I want to have a conversation with you. Well, those two make me enormously happy, I will reveal, because they were massively influential in terms of what I wanted to accomplish and what I thought a sort of road-driven philosophical memoir could accomplish. I think that, that what I love about both Kerouac and Persig is their ability to make the philosophical personal. Right. And, and I think that... For me, at least, the emotional driver is far more interesting than any abstract intellectual one. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to, even Persig, in terms of his theory of quality, sort of goes further than than I want to in term or would be comfortable with in terms of trying to further some 
abstract philosophical theory or advance something within the field. I was really interested in connecting the philosophical, the emotional, and the tangible in in the sort of setting of a California landscape and, and bringing meaning to bear through all of those threads. So let me challenge you. Yeah. About the aspect that you call it a memoir. Yeah. And genres are really interesting. Sometimes you get pigeonholed in dramas, in uh, yeah. genres. So I, yeah. I interviewed many years ago, Jeanette Walls wrote the book called The Glass Castle, probably one of right. the most successful uh, memoirs of all time. And one, right. of, one of my takeaways was she said to me, yeah, this is my story. If you yeah. talk to my parents or my siblings, their recollections, their story may be different. Since you said yeah. it's a memoir, how yeah. is your memory slightly different if they are than anybody else that's in this book? Well, I'm sure that sort of what what I pulled out, well, there's multiple threads. So I've got to sort of go thread by thread. But in terms of the the trip down the coast with Jackson and Zach, I'm sure that I very idiosyncratically pulled out certain aspects of it, remembered certain things in a way that would be different from, from their recollection, had emotional responses to certain scenes or encounters in a way that was different from theirs. Um, certainly in terms of the thread of, of my own biography as a cyclist. And I think that this is where it gets the strangest and perhaps the most controversial, but my take, I think if you were to present my take in terms of the story of Western philosophy to 20 trained academics, I don't think that anyone would would really take issue with any of the specifics. I'm, I'm comfortable in sort of my ability to work through Plato and Descartes and everything else. However, I do have an agenda in that story as well that's that's rather idiosyncratic about um, the way that philosophy, Western philosophy in particular, can sort of impose an abstract worldview and make people feel divorced from their own lives and the world. And certainly I think that the story I tell about philosophy is related to my own personal experience with the, with the discipline and I unapologetically agenda driven. All right. So I want to talk about Nietzsche and I'm going to tell you why my experiences are very limited. Um, Okay. Your book goes into great depth. So there's, there's there's a gift there for me and it's a book that I'm going to have to read multiple times. Nietzsche was saying, I believe, be careful. You don't become the monsters you are chasing. I, yeah. I think about the Nazi hunters, but I'm going to con- I'm going to connect it to cycling, and this may be way off yeah. base, but I want your response. I'm thinking yeah. of, I'm thinking of three cyclists. Okay, Eddie Merckx, who had a nickname yep. as the Cannibal, right? Bernard, who know I saw him race in Colorado, yep. was the Badger, but the last one really fascinates me. Yeah, that's Lance Armstrong. Yeah, because he got he was pretty much dead in with. His drive to be the monster. He was the patron of the peloton, which is alliteration. So am I way off base connecting Nietzsche to those riders and beyond just in terms of cycling itself? I think that certainly all three of them are great riders, putting aside doping everything else. Um, 
I think that connecting Nietzsche on that front is perhaps dangerous because I think that where Nietzsche really pushes for it's a later term and a little bit more psychological, but this idea of sort of self-actualization right. of becoming who you were meant to be. That's Maslow, isn't that too? Self-actualization? That is Maslow. The top, the top yes. of the pyramid. Correct. So that's, it's a later term, but this whole idea of, of sort of an individual's highest and best use for Nietzsche is artistic self-actualization expression. And I think it can often be misconstrued as you saw, as you sort of alluded to by Nietzsche's being co-opted by the National Socialists as this sort of outward, powerful, uh, militaristic call. But if you really are look through what Nietzsche has written on the topic, it's far more about self-surmounting. So I think that that certain athletes fit that bill. I think that artists certainly fit that bill more readily even than athletes but i do think that that in as much as the the sort of athlete is this outward striving goal oriented individual i think that that the sort of nietzsche uh influence for cyclists can become somewhat more problematic because it's so outward, I'm going to crush you, destroy you. Right, right. Yes, there's elements of of having to destroy oneself in that process and overcome oneself. But that that's where I start to get concerned about about Nietzsche being directly applied to sports people. I'm gonna be very honest. I'm not capable capable of too much original thought. So I do pull from other people that I respect and I read about. I've quoted him before on other episodes at Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And what he said fascinates me. I think about myself. In a sense, I think about you and I think about your focus on philosophy. And this is what he said. Yeah. We have three lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret life. The thing that interests me the most is the aspect of having a secret life. Did the philosophers deal with that? And also because you were so thoughtful and inward in a sense. Right. Do you think about that? First of all, I love that that quote from Marquez. I think that that's spot on the way most people live. And yes, for me personally, I think that trying to reconcile those three lives has been exceptionally difficult and exceptionally emotionally painful. Um, There's, I, I think what's interesting about philosophy and cycling is that in my experience in both of those domains, I always assumed that there was for everyone else, not just for myself, but some deep emotional reservoir compelling them towards winning races or academic success or intellectual novelty, some deep pain similar to my own. And I at times saw that, but then I also realized and was self-reflective enough to say, well, Maybe I'm just 
looking for a, some misplaced way okay. to sort of deal with my own issues, my own mental health struggles, my own depression. And I don't know if this is an appropriate forum, not appropriate for other people, but helpful to myself ultimately. So I think that, I think that, that figuring out the motivation of someone who is an athlete is a very, very interesting thing and a very complex thing. And I think the same thing holds true for figuring out the motivation of someone who's compelled to go through the same sort of rigors intellectually to become an academic philosopher. What's, what's the real emotional fuel impetus for this thing? And what is the expectation that, that will do, does that individual have an expectation that something will be solved or remedied through greater understanding or through athletic success or winning X number of races, I'll be fine. Or if I just only understood uh, every word of Martin Heidegger, I'll be fine. Okay. So I think that, that all of that is, is a very interesting thing to entertain. So you mentioned the word fuel. I want to go back yeah. to your cycling career in the early days as a teenager and a junior. Yeah. And what really interests me, because I've been there, I've been yeah. to Colorado Springs. I've took a tour yep. of the Olympic Training Center. Yep. I, I have gone through Garden of the Gods. And yep. we went to Manitou Springs. I took a bunch of uh, <laughs> friends of mine, runners, athletes, up Pikes yep. Peak. Which, You're bringing back a lot of memories. I've which, thought about it. Which, which I've, I've done the race multiple times, the Pikes Peak Marathon. Okay. But, you know, here's, here's my take. I want you to share your thoughts about what you went through because this is such an interesting part of the book. Yeah. And when I was also one time in India, I got into to see a monastery. Okay. And we got to spin the prayer wheels right and left. Right. And my first impressions of what you experienced – in a sense, in the training center, you were still a high school student. It was almost right. like being in a monastery. It was very, very rigid. Your whole day was planned out, and that's yep. pretty much it. So I'm going on and on and on, but let's talk about those early experiences. As a junior cyclist, I believe you were, you were focusing on track racing, uh, racing which right. fascinates me. It's another component of, of bicycle competition but beyond the track the sounds the noise the banking everything else is really right. spectacular so you're you're right that it was absolutely very rigid very monastic um i don't know what you saw or when you took the tour but when i was there it was still it, it was a decommissioned air force base with cinder block rooms right. and typically four riders per room and uh, on each floor, one sort of central bathroom in the hub. And you, you'd walk in, there was a roller room, and rollers were set up to face the cinder block walls. I remember, um, I remember the rollers. Nobody uses them anymore. I had them in my house. I had them propped up <laughs> against the wall. But it was a yeah. great discipline for us who were not as gifted as you to get on the rollers and just ride because you really could tell where the imbalances were between your right leg and your left leg and force you to be smooth or you would yep. come off the rollers. Come off the rollers and have a have a whirring sound rather than a consistent sound on the rollers. Yep. So, yeah, I think that what, what was very strange about it was I grew up in a relatively small town. Um, 
south of, of San Jose, California. And it was quite boring. And I remember sort of getting in my head relatively young. I sort of went out of here. Um, cycling seems like the epitome of freedom in a very interesting way. So as I've reflected back, sort of my desire, my desire for freedom took a very strange turn because by any measure, the amount of freedom one has when one's living at the Olympic Training Center is quite minimal. Right. Um, we didn't have cars. Um, we just trained upwards of 30 hours a week. And I felt with my level of physical talent, I needed to basically be off my legs and recovering or on my bike if I was going to survive the training load that we were under. Um, so what stands out for me now is just how, how strange the dichotomy of this idea of freedom and, and what a big role that played and a few interactions there that were just seem very surreal in retrospect sort of being stuck there. And I remember a roommate meeting some local kids who just went to high school in Colorado Springs and us going to an ice hockey game with them. Right. And as banal as that sounds, it was really jarring to go from the life we were living to sort of regular Colorado Springs high school student life and then go back to what we were doing. It was a, a incredibly jarring shift from one to the other and hard to sort of comprehend. But we all had this idea that we're here, we're on this trajectory. We were, this was probably 1999, 2000. Um, Lance Armstrong was winning the Tour de France. So yeah. we all had this sort of feeling, hope for our own cycling careers that compelled this thing in, in a very obsessive, peculiar way, I think. So for me, the spine of the book is the, the trip ride down from where you live down the coast of California. I have driven right. down that. It's spectacular. Right. One of my fondest memories when I was actually driving down in, in the van, the yeah. coastline, everything else that changes from town to town and community to community. What was the – I think this is what, maybe 10 years after your racing career. If not, I'm off the time frame, correct me. What was the genesis of doing this ride? Because part of the book is, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of what we do is muscle memory. You know, right. we, to this day, we can get on a bike and ride. Not as well, but we can get right. on a bike and ride. But you've been off the right. bike for a while. So why this – I think this is a journey. It's not just a ride. It's a journey. Why did you decide to do this with Zach and Jackson? First of all, they're two of my closest friends. Um, and, and sort of going back to the camaraderie and sort of the bonds that are formed going through something as peculiar as being – spending your teenage twenties, uh, as a cyclist sort of bonds you forever. Right. And then I think secondarily, um, just the thought of the disjunct between being a bicycle racer and yet the, pl which I had grown ambivalent about because of, of doping and the Armstrong era and what I knew the sport actually was. And yet coming back to the actual pleasure of riding a bicycle and sort of untangling riding a bicycle, which I still do love from being a bicycle racer, which I was 
far more ambivalent about. So coming back and doing the ride with them was a way to sort of redeem riding my bike and cycling as an activity from my past, what now feels like a past life as having been a professional bike racer. So take us through the journey, the map of the ride, because also that is a tour of California. And I mentioned yeah. that because one of the great American bike races is the tour of California. And I right. look forward to watching them when they used to cover it on TV. And I've been in Colorado. I've been in, in Boulder. I've had a right. chance. I used to go to Tehran and stuff. I've had a chance to watch Red Zinger and what came after Red right. Zinger. And what a great throw. I'm going to share a really, really quick story because I'm getting off course a little bit, no pun intended. <laughs> so the, the one stage of the tour of Cal, uh, not the tour, but Red Zinger was right. going to finish in the Boulderado Hotel, which I've stayed in, which is great, right in downtown Boulder, Colorado. And I'm standing across the street because the women's race is about to finish. Okay. And Beth Hyden was in the race. Standing okay. across from me in shorts was Eric Hyden, who didn't, didn't right. race one point. I mean, Olympics, one of the greatest speed skaters of all time. Absolutely. I have yes. never, ever seen the biggest legs in my life that Haydn had. And that <laughs> memory will never go away. So I just had to share that because I have, no, I have never had a chance to share that with anybody. But just being across the street from him was amazing. Well, he, he's still involved in the sport and now a physician. So he's an example of someone that's done incredibly well after their athletic life. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. You mentioned Hayden. He's he's incredible. So let's let's get back on course after a yes. slight deep tour. <laughs> kind of give us the the days you were on. I think it was three days. You covered a lot of miles because yeah. it was really interesting. Just getting back into the flow. I do know that you became a, an official writer again because you end up with road rash. So you had that badge of honor. <laughs> you, know, you, you didn't want it. I'm jumping ahead, but let's just share with the audience that experience of riding down the coast of California. Yeah. So we started, we decided to actually start at the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, we left San Francisco and, and immediately you pick your way through the city, pick your way through some post-war suburbs. Right. Um, and then over a mountain range into a town called Half Moon Bay, um, which is really where the sort of coastal part of the ride started. And this is all the, the first day we're aiming to ride between about an 80 and 110 miles each day is what we did. Um, and really wanted to remain on the coast on highway one. And in Southern California, they've referred to it more frequently as the Pacific coast highway. Right. But that's sort of a Southern Californian aspect affectation. Um, once we get into, um, the town of half moon Bay, you're absolutely right on the Pacific coast. Um, it's a two lane road. Uh, on you typically on your right side is the ocean and our sort of narrow band of sand. And especially when you're, you're in half moon Bay there in San Mateo County, you'll look to your left, look East, and you'll have, uh, mostly the Santa Cruz mountains, which are dotted with redwoods. Um, and you'll start, we'll start to head South. And we went that day, um, all the way South to, a town a little bit south of Santa Cruz, California, uh, called Capitola and spent the night there. 
But Santa Cruz is really famous for to where I went to my undergraduate, uh, went to undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz. And it's quite famous as a sort of away from Silicon Valley. You have to drive over a winding road, but it's, it's, it's as the crow flies quite proximate. But still, as I was sort of mentioning earlier, it was a sort of growing up, it was a still sort of 60s counterculture bastion where you'd see old Volkswagens and head shops on, on the downtown right. selling, selling bongs and, and Bob Marley posters and, and a sort of spillover era from, from the sort of 1960s counterculture. So that was the the first day of, of the ride. And it was in Santa Cruz where I somehow not paying attention, absolutely exhausted, fished my wheels into some railroad tracks and tried to bunny hop out unsuccessfully and was not not pleased. I don't think I'd crashed a bike in north of 20 years. So that's not at all what any of us were expecting on that first the first leg of the ride by any means. But that was that was day one. So I'm sure you've done this, Larry. You sort of start to feel quite crummy after the first day. And yeah. then suddenly, magically, your legs will start to open up. And the second day was, frankly, probably my favorite. And that was from Santa Cruz down to Big Sur. Um, and for for those who aren't familiar, Big Sur is a little bit south of Monterey, California, south of Carmel, where Clint Eastwood was the mayor. Um, and extremely isolated there's one road in highway one one road out the mountains from the east are really generally too far to have a whole lot of of roads going east west over into big sur so you'll often hear in a big storm big sur will just be completely cut off for weeks months at a time um one gas station one market one place to stay and Big Sur is quite famous, though, for the Esalon Institute, right. for um, the SF Zen Center has has a satellite campus called Tassajara. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of history there, philosophical, intellectual, countercultural history that happened in the Big Sur area. And it's just incredibly, strikingly beautiful. Um, it's it's difficult. I'm a writer. I ought to be able to fully describe it. Hopefully I do it some justice in the book, but to be frank, it's difficult to describe what a beautiful stretch of, of land it is. And the fact that it's just not developed at all. So yeah, I don't know. Do you have any memories of, of big Sur when you were driving down? I do. I want to share one other personal note. If you, if you don't yeah, mind. Um, of course. John Steinbeck was one of my favorite writers, Cannery Row. Right. I got to spend time in multiple interviews with Thomas Steinbeck. Which was That's a, amazing. Which is a th- and he was living in California, which okay. is one of the thrills of my life. And I said to him, because he was supposed to do a half yeah. hour with me for my television program. And he said to okay. his wife, who was with him in the, green, in the control room, right. we, got, we got to go, we got to go for where we had to be next. And he said, no, I'm staying. I want to do another interview. And that is one of the high points of my life. And coming out of that, and I've told this story before, so forgive me. Yeah. They're back in California. His wife calls me and says, my nephew and his wife are coming to New York to perform at a club here on Long Island. Can Can you help them out with an interview for your radio program? Whatever you can do, it would be greatly appreciated. 
Okay. Her nephew's wife was Sarah Lee Guthrie. So okay. I'm sitting here across from Woody's granddaughter, Arlo's daughter, and Woody <laughs> Guthrie. And it all came out of Thomas Steinbeck. So yes. I had to mention that because I'm reading the book and I'm saying, Canary Row, man, I have a connection to this. I hope he doesn't mind if I share the story. No, this is amazing. But, amazing. You know, this is how it all yeah. works, these connections. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that area of California, it's funny. It's still unlike the Silicon Valley, where I sort of, when we were speaking earlier, I sort of described just how much it has changed. Right. There's still an amazing Monterey, California, Salinas there. The, it still feels like the region of California described by Steinbeck to a much larger extent. The change hasn't been as rapid in that that particular stretch of of what everyone refers to as the central coast uh there's still an incredible nautical feel and steinbeck is still this for me at least for readers of steinbeck still feels like a very palpable presence right, right. um and and very far away from san jose san francisco metro changes let's say so i i want to kind of take it in a slightly different direction but i relationships and trust factor mean an awful lot to me in my life. And I think you understand that probably even better than I do. So I'm watching this series, which is in the second season of HBO called The 100-Foot Wave. Okay. And there is this connection between the jet ski, jet ski driver and the surfer right. he's towing out. And right. then when they wipe out or in danger, because this series takes place in Portugal, Nazare. One of the okay. most dangerous, most spectacular surf you'll ever, ever see. Right. And I'm thinking about the trust factor between you and Jackson when you're motor pacing him. And it's yeah. almost a nonverbal communication. But there's a tra right. trust factor there. And I, I just kind of glammed onto that because it speaks to him, this connection between the jet ski driver and the surfer he's right. involved with and the trust factor and body language. And you're just, this right. is just a very small part of the book, but I'm saying this is so interesting because you guys are so in tuned, but you know where to speed up, you know where to slow down, you know to look at right. his peddling style. That speaks volumes right. about the connection between you and your friend, the pro yeah. writer Jackson. Yeah, we spent just hundreds of hours training together. And I think that that sort of intuitive trust and intuitive understanding from both. I'm sure he knows exactly what I do when I start to fall apart from fatigue. And likewise, I'd seen that in him. And I think that what's very funny about cycling and any number of sports, frankly, is everyone starts off when they're fresh amateurs thinking that this is entirely adversarial and it is to some extent, but the better you get, the more risks you're taking as a professional, right. the more you in fact have to trust everyone else around you to not endanger you. So I think that there's a very, for someone that's not, that's not competed in the sport, there's something really counterintuitive that the better you get, the more trusting you are of your the competency of your competitors to not push you in to put not put you in danger, 
And certainly that's true on the track with events like the team pursuit where right. you're all working as a unit going right. nearly 40 miles an hour, literally a couple centimeters from the, the, the rear wheel of the rider in front of you. And certainly, as I describe in the book, when I used to motor pace Jackson, I mean, uh, you mentioned Merrick's, uh, Eddie Merrick's worst crash was when uh, actually caused the death of the driver of his motor pacer. So motor pacing is incredibly dangerous uh, under the best conditions. So someone who's a competent driver that you have to have absolute total trust, faith in when you're going 45 miles an hour on a velodrome, 45 miles an hour on a public road uh, is, is incredible because normally your face will be buried. You'll be going as hard as you can. And you're, you're absolutely relying, putting your life in the hands of that person to not make any foolish decision. So here's what we're going to do. Let you catch your breath a little bit. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. We're going to take a short break and be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is James Hibbert. The book is called The Art of Cycling, Philosophy, Meaning, and a Life on Two Wheels. I'm going to take a dramatic turn. It's many years later. You were an undergraduate in California philosophy. You yep. now have moved your family to Chicago. Yep. That part of the book, because I have personal connections to people that are struggling emotionally. Yep. I really had to sit down and think about your personal journey. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I think that for me, depression has been something that I very much have fought against and used, I think, cycling for a number of years to try and, I guess, self-medicate, cope. One is just a lot less depressed, anxious. First of all, the sort of rigid goals that are imposed by being an athlete. Right. Frame up your life. You wake up, you eat. Everything is sort of constructed around either training or recovering or then feeling exhausted from having done so. So I think that there's, there's incredible power in the routine of being a sports person to at least kick the can of depression down the road. Um, and certainly for me, it was effective for some time in, in terms of doing that. Um, and just as I talk about sort of mind body dualism and cycling in the book. I think that there's something that I've always found just ultimately perplexing about depression and, and mental health in the same front where it's sort of when you're struggling with it, you'll think this is silly. I should be able to through sheer force of will right. Right. stop torturing myself stop torturing those who love me and get back to viewing myself in the world in the way that, that everyone else seems to, or at least puts on the public face of doing. 
So I want to just kind of circle back. I hate that people are always circling back to something. <laughs> to, yeah. to, to the ride. This is where it got emotional for me once again. And I wonder if it's, yeah. if it's in the DNA of your family. Yeah. At one point in the ride, you were passing the place where your aunt had died. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you want to share that because that's also, this, as I said before, this is not just a ride. This is a journey of right. memories for you. Right. What happened to your aunt? So my aunt, her daughter, my cousin, and then her daughter, my second cousin, um, all killed themselves and by jumping off a cliff into the Pacific. Um, and I think what's very perplexing and strange about having suicide in one's family is it becomes when one is confronted with their own mental health struggles, it makes it far, far more complex. You can start to wonder, well, what if this is genetic? Right. What if this is just sort of with their own situation that I should have the poise and maturity to say they experienced some things I didn't. And uh, they're different people. It was a different time. But I do think that in addition to sort of opening up the Pandora's box of those genetic worries. When, even if you're not particularly close to the person in your family who commits suicide or a friend, it becomes a viable option just from having someone in your orbit take their life. It becomes a viable option in, I think, a way that it wouldn't otherwise. Um, and I think that myself struggling with depression and grappling with that and trying to disabuse myself of any sort of genetic reductionist ideas or things like that have certainly made my own struggle a bit more complex than it would have otherwise been. I have known four people who committed suicide. Yeah. And one of the people I interviewed many years ago, not a few years ago, Jennifer Murphy, wrote yeah. a book called First Responder, also published by Pegasus. And she was in training to be EMT. And she was yeah. taking this course and the instructor said, because you have to know what people that have mental issues when you go to help them wherever, right. wherever they need. And she said, the instructor said, people who are contemplate suicide really don't want to die. They just don't like the life they are leaving, living. And I thought that was so yeah. profound. And I'm going to share one other thing that is very profound in your book, thinking about somebody I love deeply who's wrestling yeah. with their own emotional issues. Yeah. And we try to understand what they're going through. Yeah. But in the book, it's rendered, you're living alone in your own head, and it's hard for anybody else to understand that. And if I take away yeah. anything from the book, that put in perspective about this person I care deeply about, what's going on. She will say, yes, I know what's going on, but it's hard for anybody else to understand and right. that gives me much more insight and compassion for what she's dealing with. Yeah, I, I think that that sort of sense, there's there's a, a, I don't want to sort of pivot away from the emotional terrain we're in, but I do think there's something very interesting that happens in philosophy that sheds light on this. There's a whole, there's a deep running through Western philosophy. There's a deep concern that every, that's, everything is in our own minds, right? This is called solipsism. 
And, and that's the part of the book that I, this came up in. So I'm, th- I'm right. glad you pivoted that way because I, right. I appreciate that greatly. Yeah, that's why you're much smarter than I am. I don't know about that. But this idea that you're sort of locked in your head with your thoughts, I think, is an incredibly powerful idea that you see from Plato onward. You see this sort of baked into the way Western philosophy and In fact, even Western science, Western culture have come to view the individual versus the world. Right. But I do think, and I think that that it has continued, right? Ideas about progress oftentimes rest on we have a theory, and this theory applies to multiple things and is separate from the world, divorced from the world. And yet I think that all of that scientific theoretical pro- progress that we're the benefactors of comes at a great cost. You have lots of things that you, you tend, and, and this is a very Nietzschean idea, but in that process, you tend to devalue the particular and you tend to devalue lived life and prefer abstract concepts and ideals. And I think for me at least, I have a, a great tendency towards doing that. And yet I think there's a high emotional cost for doing so. So I think that that whether it's cycling or chess or playing the violin or woodworking, that generally as a culture, moving back towards some sort of tangible engagement with people and the world is necessary for mental health and probably necessary ultimately for our survival. And and I say that, I don't think, with a whole lot of hyperbole. So I'm about to bring the whole conversation back to popular culture, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I think of Tom Brady and his relationship with his ex-wife, Giselle Bündchen. Right. And I think she got tired of being the second fiddle. Right. I want to talk about you and your relationship with your wife, Denica. Because yeah. I, I really would like to meet her, quite honestly. And she is part of the equation. And I right. wonder because of who you are and all the yeah. things you were involved with and going all to the races and then what you dealt with with your own mental health. Yeah. Did she ever think that she was taking a backseat and her time has to come? I'm sure. I mean, absolutely. I think that I have sort of reflect back on – who I am and um, I'm self-aware enough. I'm a difficult person. I'm a difficult person who is mercurial and up and down and obsessive and everything else. So no, Danica's way of looking at the world is an absolute counterbalance to my own and oftentimes makes me feel exceptionally selfish in a way that that frightens me and yet hopefully makes me a better and more decent person. So yeah, I think that even bringing our conversation back to um, top-level Murrick's Armstrong contenders for greatest of all time cyclists, as I was around Grand Tour winners or Olympic gold medalists, there was certainly something 
to admire about their achievements. And there's exceptions to this rule, so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But there were interpersonal choices that had to be made to achieve those things that I always didn't find particularly palatable. I mean, the level of self-obsession to achieve as an athlete is incredible. I mentioned being at the training center and having to be off your legs. I mean, you just have to absolutely be so self, self-centered. There's no other word, and I'm not making that morally loaded, but you have to be self-centered in order to be a top-level professional athlete in the modern era. And that scared me about who I had to become in order to get much better than I was. So here's a, here's a thought that I have, and I'm thinking about comedians and actors because this whole podcast is for storytellers. And you right. fit in very well with the equation. I think they have to be neurotic to be what they are. Yeah. Do, do you have to be slightly neurotic to have this pursuit? I think there's some people who are coming to it with pure motives than I had, than less ner- with less neurotic motives than I had. I think as the, the spectrum goes for neuroticism, I'm willing to raise my hand and, and admit that um, I was, I'm a highly neurotic individual and probably was one of the more neurotic athletes. However, I do think that there has to be some motivating chip on someone's shoulder right. to some extent, right? You have to have had some PE coach say, you suck, you're never going to achieve anything. And you have to have lodged in your head, you know what? Screw you, I'm going to in spite of. And I think there has to be some level of motivation like that to prove someone wrong or to prove something um, that is slightly neurotic or the entire enterprise wouldn't be undertaken because it's just too, it's just too effing hard. I'm smiling. People can't see that. But I love when people said, you can't do this. You can't go to altitude to run. You can't do this. You can't do that. So in one aspect, I can relate to what you say. In a very small, my very small athletic world. Yeah. We always end every segment with the question is, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So over the course of almost an hour with you, thank you so much. What did I thank miss? You, if I missed anything? And I mispronounced your wife's name and some other things. What did I get wrong? Um, it's a good question. I think that, I think in terms of, getting wrong, not a whole lot. I think we were able to be pretty compatible on this. I think in terms of maybe anything that, that we missed or didn't cover, I would say, I think there's, there's something very interesting. That's not even personal for me, but a personal, a story that motivates philosophy. And I think that, that regardless of, of, if anyone has ever read Spinoza or Camus or Nietzsche, there are certain assumptions that are baked into how we as Westerners view the world that I think are, are very much baked into philosophy and are a very interesting thing to consider. And I think there's a story there to be told and it's still unfurling a story about alienation and abstraction and hopefully in the future, 
redeeming the world to some extent from those sort of technological abstractions that everyone is rushing headlong towards. My guest, James Hibbert, has a story to tell, the art of cycling, philosophy, meaning, and a life on two wheels. Um, this has been a pure pleasure. Uh, I thank, thank you so, so much, much James, and hopefully we can touch base in the future. Quick question. Are you working on a screenplay? Uh, I am. I have a screenplay that is being developed by UK production company as we speak. So that's another hard business, but it's going. All right. We'll go, we'll get, I want to get back to that sometime in the future. James, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Larry. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, Visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her key.